Well, amen. Hello to everyone in the room. And if you're watching online, if you don't know who I am, my name is Mike. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and also sharing. Thank you for whoever wooed there. I don't think it was even my wife. That's fantastic. I was Vicky. Thank you, Vicky. Uh, but I also get the privilege of sharing the word today. And you will find us uh, right here today in the middle of our generous campaign. We've had some fantastic messages over the weeks. Last week, one of our elders, David, from Roy. And we are just going to be carrying on with this generous theme, this campaign, for a few more weeks. And this morning, I want to look at this generous campaign, but take a little bit of a right turn out of what is usual. Because actually, when we're talking about generous, I'm not talking about generous in the way we would probably always understand it financially or time. But I have just been so caught on a particular chapter in the Bible this past week, and I don't know why, uh, and I don't know how, because it's not in my Bible reading plan, but this, uh, this chapter just came to my mind on Monday morning, and I've been sat in it all week, and it is Acts chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. I will be reading the verses out to you, a few sentences, so don't worry if you haven't got a Bible. But as we get there, let me give you a little bit of a context. Let me introduce you to a man called Saul. And if you don't know Saul, I want to tell you a little bit about him. And this is what we can glean from Scripture, not just the passages we're about to read, but also with hindsight and some of his history as Saul delves deeper into his own character later in life. Now, Saul was an extremely, extremely intelligent man. He was a religious leader in the first century, probably where we find him in Acts 9, he is in his 20s. Now to be a religious leader in the first century doesn't sound that glamorous, but we need to understand the context of the time. Because to be a religious leader in Jerusalem in this time frame was like being a celebrity today. You need to remember this is before Netflix, before Hollywood, before football. If you were the religious leader, chances are you would be on the front page of the Sun, the Times, you would be all over people's social media channel because you were fawned over. Now Saul wasn't just a religious leader, he was a highly sought after religious leader. He was apprenticed to one of the most famous rabbis or teachers of the time, a man called Gamaliel. And because he was a student of Gamaliel, this high prominent Pharisee, this religious teacher, we know that Saul had to be absolutely the top of his class in everything. But as we begin to look at Saul, we don't just find out he's intelligent, we find he's also very hot-headed. There's a lot of zealousness and there's also a lot of fear and jealousy. Well, why was he jealous if he was at the top escalons of society? Well, at the same time, there's a new movement that has been birthed. It is called a Jewish sect, which we now know as Christianity. And the problem with Christianity is they were butchering Saul's religion, Saul's teaching, and it was being led by not people who'd studied for years and years, intelligent people. It was being led by fishermen and tax collectors, really the down and outs of society. And Saul had an issue because people no longer were looking up to him and coming to his meetings and his congregation. They were going out into the countryside and listening to these uneducated men. We see in Acts 6, just a few chapters before Acts 9, that the, the leaders of this new Christian sect, this Jewish sect called Christianity, were called unschooled men. Actually, the Greek is idiota. And if you have a little bit of intelligence there, you can probably realise that's where we get the word idiot from. They were called idiots for Jesus. 
So Saul is now contending. He has always had privilege. He has always been looked after. He has always been fawned after. He was the person that when he walked down the street, people parted like the Red Sea, but no longer was that happening. And Saul started to get jealous. He started to get angry. And he also started to get hateful. And this is exactly where we pick up this man's story, Saul, in Acts 9. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, as I said, but I will read it to you. And he's actually often called the Damascus Road Experience. You may have heard that if you're familiar with church uh, services and meetings. Listen to this. This is how we know that Saul was just so full of hate and anger. Meanwhile, verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to this new way, Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, if you backtrack just a couple of chapters, you will see that Saul was instrumental in the murder of a Christian person. He doesn't sound that religious, does he? This is what jealousy and envy and pride do. It distorts what is good. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly there was a light from heaven that flashed all around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I probably should have got Steve Thompson to read that out. It probably would have been a bit more weighty. Why do you persecute me, Saul? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. I'm just going to pause there, just a a complete side note. But isn't it interesting, when we encounter Jesus personally, often those around us can see something has changed but don't understand it. And I want to give you encouragement. Maybe you've been a Christian years and years. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. But when you have an encounter with Jesus, don't worry about the people around you. Just focus on exactly what he says. Verse uh, 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. And so the people with him led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three whole days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, this just absolutely fascinates me because when we talk about the Damascus Road experience, usually you will hear people give a testimony and say, I have had a Damascus Road experience referencing this incident that happened here. And usually the people who say that were like deemed, I think, in church like the worst sinners. They were murderers and drug addicts. They led drug cartels around Bedfordshire and Luton. And they had this Damascus Road experience and instantly they changed. What's really, really interesting about Saul, though, is Saul absolutely knew about God. As I said, Saul was a religious leader. He wasn't running drug cartels. He was a murderer, as I mentioned, but he did it in the name of God. He thought he knew exactly what God required of him and he was following his own religious conviction from what he thought he knew about God. And I had a scary wake-up call reading this because I asked God, uh, and of course I've had moments of encounter with Jesus and and been called into ministry. I absolutely believe I've encountered Jesus. But we so often can't live on an encounter three years ago because Jesus wants to give us fresh encounter every day. The point is we can know a lot about God but not know him at all. We can know all the details. We can know chapters and verses. We can know the arc of scripture. And this is what a lot of people say about theologians. Theologians are people who academically study the Bible. Can know all the facts, all the figures, but actually experience Trump's knowledge every single day. You can have all the information you want and never know Jesus. Isn't that a fascinating thought? And I just felt God say, when was the last time you saw encounter from me and not just information about me? 
Because this is literally my job. I get paid to talk about Jesus. And it's a very, very fine line where you're looking in scripture and you're not looking for encounter. You're looking for information. Now, what we do, not just as preachers, but as Christians, we shouldn't be going to the Bible to make our lives better. We should be going to the Bible to find encounter to overflow uh, out of it. And what really fascinated me about Saul's account, he knew everything about God. And when he had this moment of clarity, this moment of encounter, everything changed within him. But there's something that's different happens with Saul. When he encounters Jesus, he almost seems to leave worse off than when he came which is the absolute direct opposite of what happens through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John when Jesus walked on earth. Every time people go to the feet of Jesus, 99.9% of the time, bar one account that I can think of, people leave with far more than what they came for. You see, when blind people came to Jesus in the Gospels, they left with sight. Saul had sight and he left blind. He, He had this phenomenal encounter with Jesus but he left him blind. And that raised a question mark for me. Well, surely, Jesus, if people encounter you, they should leave better than how they came to you. And as I was wrestling with this, I just got this sense, this, this, this paragraph popped in my head. And although Saul lost his sight externally, it seems as we read on, and we're going to read on in just a moment, something awoke internally. So the light that blinded him externally had the exact opposite within him, had the opposite effect completely. So Saul, who was full of pride and envy, was self-righteous, who loved the fame, who loved people looking up to him. Now he was just a hopeless person on the floor. He couldn't see anything. And I wonder how much as he sat there in those moments and those instants, as he realised he's blind, everything he thought was important to him before suddenly lost all interest. You see, the man who was filled with pride, with jealousy, with hate, with anger, was now instantly filled with humility, fragility, submission, obedience, dependence, revelation. And there's this moment of introspection. Because Paul was persecuting these Christians who called Jesus Lord. What is the first word that comes out of Saul's mouth when he realises that he was blind? It is Lord. He didn't even know what was happening, but he knew that the person in front of him, he had to be submissive to him. And I think when Jesus introduces himself to us to experience, maybe if we've never even been to church before, we don't realise who it is until we take some time to really sit on it and dwell on it. And as I was asking Jesus, why did you blind Saul? Why did you leave him blind? Surely this wasn't a good thing for him. I just felt this word come into my spirit called process. Process, And I believe, church, that the Christian life is a life of process. It's a, it's a time of dwelling and changing. And, and the Damascus Road, we, we talk about instantaneous change. That's how we, we, we talk about it and preach about it. A Damascus Road experience, bang, everything changes in an instant. Well, of course, everything changed inside of Saul in that moment. But I want to tell you, it took a long time for him to be the, the Saul that Jesus was calling him to be. And you'll notice I, I keep using the name Saul and Paul interchangeably because Saul actually ended up becoming the Apostle Paul. And we don't know Saul as Saul anymore. We know him as Paul. But he wasn't called Paul until five or four chapters later in Acts 13. Because Jesus began a process in the instant where everything changed inside of him. But it took a lot of rubbing off the edges until he was ready to go into the commission that Jesus had called him to be. 
And church, I want to tell you today, if you are in a moment where you feel like spiritually you are blind, when you feel like maybe you've even done everything right, we can see with Paul he'd done things wrong, and and you could even say that Jesus was punishing Saul. But if you were in this moment now where it just isn't clicking together, where you were in a moment of darkness, for three days it was for Saul. You think of Jonah, it was three days for Jonah. You think of Jesus in the tomb, it was three days. It is part of the process. I don't believe Jesus was punishing Saul because I don't think punishment is in the character of Jesus. Jesus doesn't use punishment to try and change someone. What Jesus does use is discipline. I believe that discipline is part of all of our processes. You see, punishment is about condemnation. Discipline is about correction. I'll say that again. Punishment is about condemnation. Discipline is about correction. Actually, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you, maybe you're going through a time in the minute where you just feel like God is, is, is being silent or God is chipping away, edges off you and it hurts, let me tell you, he's doing it because he loves you. I do not believe that God causes punishment. I do not believe that God causes us to go through horrible things. I do not believe that God causes us to have cancers and illnesses. But I believe when we find ourselves in a broken world in those situations, he uses those things to help shape us and mould us into the person that he wants us to be. So when we are talking around this theme of generosity, I want to ask us to be generous to ourselves and trust his process. Be generous. If you are beating yourself up because you've got something wrong, if you are beating yourself up because you just feel like you're in a pit, if you're beating yourself up because your partner has left you or your finances have dropped or your job's disappeared, if you are hurting yourself and and scratching your head and asking God why, I want to give you some faith and say trust his process. Salvation, it happens in a moment. It's birthed in a moment. But actually we're called into a process of salvation. Again, just like the Damascus Rose, we talk about salvation as being a moment thing. And I believe that salvation is birthed in a moment, but it is built in movement. I'll say that again. Salvation is birthed in a moment, instantaneously. As soon as you surrender your life to God, that is it. You are his child. He loves you. He cares for you. Salvation is yours. But if you want to build it, if you want to grow more robust in your faith, it's built in movement. Look at this verse. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2 verse 2. Like newborn babies crave, I love that word, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Again, as I said, Saul knew everything about the Bible and I bet he knew the Bible better than Peter and James and John and the sons of thunder and Thaddeus and Judas and all the other disciples. I would put money on the fact that Saul was a better Bible scholar than all the disciples, but he missed the experience of walking with Jesus. He'd never had an encounter with Jesus. He'd never met him. And as he's laying there with all his knowledge, blind and unsure what to do next, I believe Jesus was telling him, right, this is the start of a new moment in your life. It's a new chapter. I want you to crave that spiritual milk. I want you to humble yourself, put your pride aside and begin to learn of fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and all these people who've been called to the way called Christianity. Saul, it is time to forget the head knowledge and start chasing after the heart knowledge. And we are in a society in the 21st century that are addicted to information. 
We know that because of social media. We know that because of all the apps. We know that because of the amount of Google searches we do. I wonder, oftentimes, 25 years ago when I was a kid, how my parents survived without Google. How did you write a sermon 25 years ago? You'd have to go to a library and spend thousands of pounds on books. You can write a sermon in half the time now because when you are, you're sitting there thinking, oh, where's that verse? You don't have to trawl through a library. You don't have to go through a concordance. All you have to do is type it in the Holy Grail. That is Google. And we have all this information at our fingertips. We're sport for information. But I believe the Western church in particular, we lack the power of encounter. And that's a weighty thing. And I felt convicted when I was just thinking about this because I think so often I rely more on my, my information and the things I've been taught than actually seeking after Jesus in fresh encounter. So why am I telling you all this about Saul? How on earth does this have anything to do with generosity? Well, let's look what happens next. Let's go to verse 10. And we're introduced to another man who perhaps, maybe even if you've been in church 10, 15, 20 years, you've never come across If you have come across Ananias, you probably think straight away to Acts 4, where there's an unfortunate scenario with a man and his wife called Sapphira, where they lied to the apostles and instantly they die. Not talking about that Ananias, that's a whole different sermon that I'd have to spend a lot of time researching. Okay, this is a different Ananias. As I said, you're probably unfamiliar with him. But in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Because in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Let's pause there. As I said, the likelihood was that Saul was on the front cover of Hello Magazine, GQ and The Sun. It wasn't a secret what Saul had come to Damascus to do. And to put this in context, this is like the Lord calling one of you, maybe Robin or David, in a vision at night time saying, right, there's a man down the road. He's a famous ISIS fighter. He's killed your family, your friends, everyone you love. He's after, but I want you to go to his house and lay hands on him. Now, I'm not sure what the original Greek says on laying hands, but I'm sure laying hands to Ananias probably had a very different concept to what the Lord was asking him to do. He's probably thinking more throttling this man than praying for him. But I want you to try and get the gravity of what God is asking this man who we don't hear or don't know much about to go and do. It's literally going to, to pray for a man who has been commissioned and applauded for killing your best friends, your family members, and even would be desperate to kill you. So let's pick it up in verse 14. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So he won't get arrested for it. He won't get abused for it by the authorities. If he kills you, he's going to get applauded. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, who is Jesus, appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this just baffles me. As I said, it's really, really easy to to read over this name, Ananias, and never, 
ever really ask any questions or know anything about him. But I want to tell you that Ananias was a man who demonstrates a radical obedience and generosity that we really need to take note of. Because if God woke me up tonight, even if it was in a vision and spoke to me audibly, I would really, really struggle to obey what he had told me to do if he had asked me to do something of this gravity. This is a huge thing that God is asking Ananias to go and do, to go and pray for this terrorist who is murdering my family and friends. And it baffles me even more when Ananias walks in and he begins to pray for Saul even if he was obeying him, and this is me, and I'm sure you know, I've got some edges that need praying off and there's some carnality in there, but before I'd pray for Saul, I would give him a lecture. Can't see me, it's a captive audience. So I want you to realise what you've done is really, really wrong. It's really, really bad. And you deserve the pit that you're in. You deserve this blindness. Paul was so, Saul was so horrified at the blindness. He didn't eat or drink for three days. He was really suffering. I would have loved to have just rubbed that in a little bit, if I'm honest. But he didn't. What are the first words that come out of Ananias' mouth? Brother. Brother. Ananias didn't even know it, but he was teaching Saul some lessons, even just by the words he was praying over him. Saul, this man who prized information, who prized academic success, who prized being in the spotlight, was being taught by a humble man who we don't know anything about, that actually this God who we serve is real, this God who we serve is countercultural. this God who we serve is, is raising you up to do something amazing, and I want to actually embrace you as a family member, brother. Ananias was modelling exactly what Jesus taught. See, it's really, really easy to say with your lips, uh, uh, you know, I follow Jesus and I love what he does. It takes a whole other thing to put into action, that stuff. So I want to ask you today, church, what and who are you teaching by your actions and words? As you go into your workplace on a Monday, whether that's a big factory or a local shop or a doctor's surgery or an office, will people stop and consider that actually you know Jesus because of how you act, not just because of what you preach? As I said, Saul thought he knew God, but his actions were the absolute antithesis of what Jesus taught and what God commissioned. What do people say about you? Let's look at this, Acts, 19, Acts 9, verse 18 to 19. And then as Ananias laid his hands and began to pray for brother Saul, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, I just want to take us out of the scripture for a moment and take you to a place in Northampton that I was very familiar with. Um, I, I, I had moved to Northampton in the spring of June 2013. And there's this obscure uh, bit of scripture, I think it's in Luke 10 verse 18, where Jesus talks about seeing Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Have you ever read that and been amazed? What, what do you mean Satan falls like lightning from the sky to the earth? Well, I would bet money on the fact that Satan lives in this place. And this place is called Soul Central Car Park and it is in Northampton. It is absolutely awful, okay? You can't really tell on the picture, but each and every car parking space in Soul Central is probably made for a two-seater smart car. You know, those little tiny electric cars? And I had just moved uh, to Northampton I wasn't very successful in driving, okay? I had uh, I'd been brought up in Birmingham and everything's connected to everything. There's trains and buses and taxis and friends who can drive. So uh, I'm ashamed to say it took me five attempts to pass my driving licence. 
Uh, and if you do see my car, there's a lot of books, uh, bumps and scratches on it, but that is Becky, that isn't me. I've got much better uh, since spending five attempts to pass my driving licence. But because I never had to drive, I got my licence and then didn't worry about it. But then I met this girl called Rebecca Heron, my wife now, Rebecca Nichols, who had a car. So instantly, I'm quids in. And I'm not, I'm not saying the reason I got engaged to Becky was because she had a car, but it did play quite an important factor. Okay? Didn't have to buy, buy a car, didn't have to worry about that, because Becky had this amazing Renault Scenic, okay? retro Renault Scenic. And it was a big car, and I'm not a good driver. And then couple this with car parking spaces that are made for Smurfs, and you're in trouble, okay? Because Seoul Central is where my gym was located. I'm probably three weeks out from my wedding. I've just moved into our house in Northampton, getting it ready before Becky moves in. And I'm just trying to get a bit of a pump on for my wedding day so I look good in the pictures. So 6 a.m., I'm out in Seoul Central, and there's never any parking spaces in Seoul Central. It's really, really hard. The only parking spaces that are usually left are the ones next to these big white pillars, which are just awful. So thankfully, I managed to squeeze into this tiny, tiny spot, even without parking sensors, I'll have you know, I was very impressed, and right next to a brand new Range Rover, which goodness me, I didn't want to touch. So I got quite tight in to this, uh, this pillar. So I go into the gym, I do my workout, I was probably there for about four and a half hours because I want to make sure you know I'm looking good and I'm getting pumped. I get back into my car, squeeze into my car next to this Range Rover, trying desperately not to dent the door because there's cameras everywhere. And as I sit in my car, I put the key in the ignition, getting ready to go home, start the car, clutch down first gear and begin to move out. Now I'm trying desperately not to touch this, this, uh, this Range Rover. I, I always make a mess of parking. Thankfully now I've got parking sensors on the front and the back, so I'm okay, but I've got nothing. I'm trying desperately not to touch it. And I begin to hear this sound. And it wasn't a heavenly sound. It was a really, really bad sound. It started to begin as a scrape. And, and, and it's even worse because there were people walking past the car as I'm doing it. And they didn't carry on walking. They stopped and they were watching. Uh, and so I try and reverse a little bit. There's a car behind me. But as I'm reversing, the sound sounds even worse. So I, I go forward and I just have to commit to it. So I, I, I put it in first and I just edge out. And the sound lasted... I'll, it felt like two hours, it was probably 20 seconds. I pulled out, I parked in the middle of the road, I got out, and no exaggeration, I wish I had a picture, uh, couldn't find it, no exaggeration, I ripped the whole side of the car off. From driver door to the petrol cap at the back, the whole of the car wasn't dented, wasn't scratched, it was ripped off. Remember, this isn't my car, and I'm not even married yet, so I'm thinking, well, that's it, the wedding's off. Wrecked the car, wrecked my life, and, uh, and, and I went back to the parking space. What was it? Look at this. This was my line of vision. I, I did all my mirror checks, checked, but my line of vision missed this horrible yellow grill that was protecting this pipe. And if you notice, if you look behind on the other pillars, there's no, there's no grills on those. It's just this one had these massive yellow grills. As I was sat in the driver's seat, I remembered... My driving lessons a couple of months before, I was always told to check my blind spots. Check your blind spots. As I was sat in the driver's seat, I looked in my mirrors, left, right, central mirror, could not see a thing. My line of vision was completely over the grill. I saw the pillar, I didn't see the grill. Why am I telling you this painful, long story? Because if Becky had been sat in the passenger seat, she would have seen in a moment what I didn't see as I was looking and pulling out of that thing. Becky would have covered my blind spot. 
Still do it now, now when we come to church down the A6, there's this junction getting onto the A6 where you have to try and lean right over to see the cars coming. What do I usually do? I say, Becky, is there anything coming? You look that way, I'll look this way. And then I put my foot down and get out there quick. But I want to ask you, church, who is covering your blind spots? When Ananias walked into that house, Judas's house on Straight Street, and he put his hands on Paul's head, or Saul's head, and he began to pray for him, instantly Paul began to see. He closed his eyes as Saul, opened his eyes as Paul, a new creation in Christ. Ananias was able to release something that Saul could not do by himself. He covered his blind spots. And I believe he didn't just do that physically, I believe he opened some blind spots spiritually as well. We see, as we read on in Acts, that Saul, this pompous man who knew everything, submitted himself to the authority of Peter the fisherman, of John and James, fishermen, James, the brother of Jesus, who was a lowly carpenter in Nazareth. He submitted himself, his pride took a back seat. And actually, as we look at Saul turning into the Apostle Paul, he is always surrounded by people. We hold the Apostle Paul up as this amazing, amazing man, which of course he was. He wrote a third of the whole New Testament. But Saul, becoming Paul, was always surrounded by people. Barnabas, John Mark, Silas. Actually, there's an almost heart-wrenching few verses in Timothy where, where he says, everyone has left me. He says, I've not got my books, I've not got my clothes, I'm by myself, I'm sat in prison, only Luke is here and only two or three other disciples, but everyone has left me. Uh, And as I say, we don't know much about Ananias at all. This is all we see of him in the whole of the scripture. But actually, when we piece it together, we see Paul in Galatians 1, verse 15 to 18. He talks about the instance of of having this revelation from Jesus. And as we read Acts 9 into 10, it seems instantly that Paul begins to preach and, and see converts. Galatians tells us that he didn't go straight to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia for a, bit, for a bit and then he came back to Damascus and he was there for three years. And this is what we so often miss in scripture. Literally in a verse or a page, we think happens instantaneously, but actually sometimes there's years, three or 10. Moses in the desert, we see it for a couple of verses. It was 40 years. What does this tell us? That process is important. We need not measure ourselves against the world standards. We need not measure ourselves on the instantaneous culture. Process is part of the Christian faith. And Saul becoming poor, having his blind spots removed, surrounded by good, godly people, became this amazing apostle that I think many of us are a direct descendant of in the faith. Millions of people have come to faith because of Saul becoming poor. But without an obedient Ananias... There'd never be an Apostle Paul. Isn't that startling? This man we just have a few verses of in Acts 9, 10 to 18. Without, without him, there's never an Apostle Paul. Recently, I was reading the biography of a man called Ryan Hardbonke, who you may be familiar with. If you're not, he was an evangelist, so his job was to tell people about Jesus. And this man has led literally 20 million people to Christ. But his first chapter of his autobiography called Living a Life of Fire is dedicated to a man, I can't even remember his name, it's a German man, an evangelist who saw no success in a 20 or 30 year ministry. Preached his guts out, very few people came to faith. But one of the people that came to faith was Reinhard Bonnke's father. And because of Reinhard Bonnke's father coming to faith, Reinhard came to faith. And because of Reinhard, 20 million souls have now been saved for the cause of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? 
And a few weeks ago, I preached on Rebecca, and one of the throwaway lines I said is, if you can't serve in the spotlight, don't despise the twilight. And I want to say that everyone in the spotlight is often standing on the shoulders of the person in the twilight. There's so many people in and around our lives we don't realise are having an amazing impact on our life called by Jesus to do what we are commissioned to do. So as I close and the band come back, I, I want us to remember three things from the word today. And I know it's been a little bit jumbly. As I said, I've, I've been sat on this, this chapter for, for a whole week. And I could probably get five or six different sermons out of what I'm just gleaning from it. But if you're in a moment now where you're just feeling blind and, and feeling a bit down and you're feeling maybe like nothing is going right, I want to say trust God in the process. Maybe it is an attack of the enemy. Maybe it is absolutely not your fault, but God can work. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things for, for good for those who love him. God will work in the darkness and the blindness. Number two, who is your Ananias? The thing that God has called you to do, whether it is in the spotlight, whether it is in the twilight, whether it's on a platform or whether it's in a back room, who is the person that released that commission of God on your life? And maybe if they're still around or still alive or still in town, why don't you send them a text or give them a phone call this afternoon and just say, you know what, I really value you and thank you what you did for me because it's released something in me that couldn't have been released had I not been there. And number three, who can you be in an Ananias 2? Who can you be in Ananias 2? Who is around your lives that you were seeing amazing potential in, but they can't see themselves? Are there some blind spots you can see that they cannot see? You know, when Becky and I approached the elders about this jointly pastor proposition, which as Matthew read, isn't like a massively done thing. It's far more prominent now than it used to be. One of the reasons we have done this is because I believe my leadership is far much better with Becky by my side. She, she hits on some things that I just completely miss. There's some blind spots in my life that with Becky leading with me just get covered and vice versa. Maybe less so for you than me. I think you cover more of my blind spots. But who can you be an Ananias to? Maybe there's someone in your mind that, that isn't just leaving there. You don't know why they've been on your mind. Maybe it's a young person, could be an older person that God has just put on your heart. Why don't you call them this afternoon and just encourage them and release them uh, into what God has called them to do? So I wonder, as we stand, let me pray as we go into this lag song of worship, which I believe is Build My Life. I love this song. It talks about building our life on the firm foundation of Jesus. Lord Jesus, as we read about Saul becoming Paul and Ananias today, Lord, make sense of what has been preached in our own lives and what that looks like practically for us, Lord Jesus. I know, Lord, you've been speaking to me about releasing people and laying hands on people, releasing them into calling and commission, God. And I pray for each and every person standing in this room and each and every person watching that, God, you just put a name on their heart today to go and encourage and release. And Lord, I pray as we are doing our own journey, as we are craving that pure spiritual milk that is helping us grow up in our own faith, Lord, help us be aware of our blind spots. Help us and give us the courage and the audacity to ask for help when we need it, to ask for that place where we need to see that we've missed God and bring people around our lives in our Christian community to help us and encourage us. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team.